We're in John 6 this morning, if you have a Bible with you, John chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 15 verses. The title this morning is simple, Jesus Provides. This story we're going to look at is, interestingly, um, it's, it's the feeding of the 5,000, and it is one of the only miracles found in all four of the Gospels, which speaks of its significance in what it teaches us about Jesus, but it also speaks of its significance in its impact that it had on those early disciples and the ongoing impact that it continues to have on his disciples today, including us. So with that said, why don't we pick up and read John 6, 1 to 15. As we're reading it, I want to draw your attention to verse 6. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they For so many. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, (coughs) so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This story is a part of a larger story. We'll get to the other part of it later on. Uh, but there is a truth that is, le- that is in this story. And I think it actually speaks to two related truths that every follower of Jesus needs to understand about the Christian life. The first truth is this, that God often leads us into situations in our lives to test our faith in Him and in His Word so that our faith in Him and our character grows. Secondly, God is always in control of those situations that He leads us into. He is never not in control. And He will complete the work that He begins 
in his people. This story is an example of those two related truths in action. I think we see that obviously in verse 6. There's all kinds of tests that the Lord brings into our lives, and each one of those tests is tailor-fit to the person, it's tailor-fit to the situation, and it is intended to reveal things about God, about His character, about His Word, about what He is trying to do, and to transform you. It is tailor-fit in all of those things. And in this story, there was a very specific lesson that Jesus wanted to teach the disciples about who he was, what he came to do, and what he was expecting of them if they were going to follow him. And it's the same lesson that he continues to teach his disciples today, including you and me, especially when he calls you to serve him in some capacity. And the lesson is this, as you follow Jesus, you can trust him to provide all that you need. It's very simple. As you follow Jesus, you can trust him to provide all that you need. Over the 19 years that I have been following Jesus, this is a lesson that I have come to learn and relearn over and over again. And I'm sure that many of you, as you've been following the Lord for years or maybe even new, you can look back on circumstances and situations in your life and see how God was both testing your faith in Him and in His Word, and how you saw God, of course, looking back in the rearview mirror, now you can see how God was faithful to provide for you over and over again. That's what this story is all about. Jesus is testing the faith of His disciples to see if they were going to believe in Him. And the lesson that He's teaching them here will be vital for them in the future as they are called by him to serve him and bring the gospel outside of Jerusalem and even beyond. The location that this story occurs, John tells us, it was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has moved out of Jerusalem where he previously was, and now he's in the area of Galilee. He's on the other side of the sea. John says to his readers, that this was also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Nevertheless, this is where the story takes place. The timing of the the story is also significant. Tells us in verse 4, it was during the Passover feast of the Jews, which also reminds us a year has passed since Jesus sort of kicked off his ministry. Remember the the cleansing of the temple (coughs) was during the Passover The next time that we will read about the Passover, it will be at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before going to the cross. But this is the moment. This is the timing of the story. And it's significant because this Jewish holiday was significant. The holiday celebrated when God provided the means of escaping His judgment on Egypt when he was delivering his people out of slavery. The story goes that God was going to bring judgment on the firstborn of Egypt, and as the angel of death was coming, God said, I want you to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of that lamb, put it over the doors of your houses, so that when the angel of death comes by, he will pass over, because the image is that death has already visited this house. And so, 
The Passover, this holiday, this annual holiday, celebrated how God provided salvation for them. This was significant because as Jesus performs this miracle of provision, the theme of God's miraculous and gracious provision was already front and center in their minds, those who were celebrating the Passover. But as the story develops, what's also significant is that a large crowd from this area of Galilee started to follow Jesus. And John tells us why. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, we've already seen this before, crowds following Jesus because they want to see the miraculous signs that he's doing. In the other occasions, though, they were coming for the entertainment value of the signs. They were coming because their curiosity was being uh, pulled on, and so they wanted to see these signs. This group was different. These people had genuine needs. These were poor people. These were working class folks, and they came to Jesus, lots of them, because it was rumored that he was able to heal the sick. When I was, years ago, when I was in Haiti, on a mission trip, we were staying in this like missionary house and there was a wall on the outside. And I just will never forget this event. I walked out of the sort of compound wall and there were two kids there, probably eight, nine, ten age. And I, I think I handed them a piece of jerky or something like that. And within two minutes, there was 30 people around me, probably you know, most of them kids, probably about 10 adults. I mean, within minutes. And I looked around and I thought, where did all these people come from? And, and it was because of the poverty that is there, that the need is so high. But that, that just that feeling of people just coming out of nowhere, it makes me think about this story. Where do all these people come from? Well, when there's somebody there offering healing to the sick, people come out of the woodwork to come and see and experience what Jesus is able to do. But it was to this group, people who had nothing to offer other than their need, that Jesus wanted to minister to. And what he wanted to, he brought his disciples to these people to teach them an important lesson about ministry and about following him and serving others And the lesson is this, that you can trust him to provide all that you need. For those who are still considering whether or not they want to become a Christian, oftentimes in the back of their minds, they're thinking or they're waiting for God to answer this question, God, if I follow you, are you going to provide for all of my needs? Even if we don't know how to articulate that question? I think a lot of them are asking that. And I say that because Jacob, that patriarch of Israel, when he had his come to Jesus moment back in the book of Genesis, God comes to him in a vision and it's the whole Jacob, Jacob's ladder scene. But that's what Jacob prays. If you will provide for me, I'm paraphrasing, then you will be my God. And I think a lot of people wonder that. Still, I think there's others who, after committing their life to Christ, some of them, they believe that God can do it, but they doubt if he actually will. 
provide for them. And I think this story is meant to encourage you as well. There are some, though, who believe, yeah, God provides for me. He provides for all of my daily needs. But you struggle to see how God maybe can meet the larger need of the church body or a group of people. And it's with all those people in mind that Jesus performs this miracle. And it's why John records it, to teach us a lesson about faith in God and how God is able to provide for his people. Look again at verse 3 and 5. Jesus is about to teach this lesson. It says that he goes up onto a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. This is a, uh, a clue that Jesus is about to teach. For us in our day, when we walk into a class, you, the students, sit down and then the teacher gets up and gets on their whiteboard or whatever they do. Well, in their day, all the students stood up and the teacher sat down. I don't know why this works this way. I think it should be flipped. So that from now on, I, I sit down at the chair for an hour or whatever it is. But that's the posture. Jesus is getting ready to teach. And then it says in verse 5 that Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing the crowd of people, he turned to his disciples or one disciple named Philip. And he asked him a question, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, there's a logical reason why he would ask Philip. It's because Philip was from this area. Uh, we learned that back in chapter 1. It says that Philip was from the area of Galilee, specifically from the town of Bethsaida, which was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So it would make sense that Jesus would ask the local guy, where do we go to buy food for this amount of people? But it would also make sense that if Jesus wanted to teach a lesson that he would look to the guy who may have a more relevant response or surface-level response. And we see how he responds in verse 7. Philip responds and says, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to feed all of these people. In other words, Philip looks at Jesus and says, there's not a place near here that could supply the amount of bread that we need. And on top of that, even if we could find such a place, we don't have near the money that it would take to feed all of these people. The amount that Philip suggests was roughly about eight months worth of wages. And he says, even if we had that, it wouldn't be able to meet the need that's here. So you can see that Jesus, and then John, the way he's telling the story, is ratcheting it up the situation. This is an impossible moment and an impossible question. So it helps us to see that Jesus is actually asking Philip a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. There was not a place nearby that could supply that much food at one time. Not even Costco, if you could empty all of its shelves, could feed that amount of people. John tells us in verse 10, there were five thousand men there. It just mentions the men as representative for various groups. It does not include the women and the children who were there. So imagine thousands of people. Think about the city of Canby, which I don't know what the city population is, like between 17 to 18,000 people, all gathering in like the field up there off of territorial. Just thousands of people gathered there. 
Jesus didn't ask this question because he was an idiot. He didn't ask this question because he didn't understand that there was not a place like this. So we wonder why would Jesus ask a question like this if he wasn't an idiot, but if he understood that there wasn't that, uh, why would he ask this rhetorical question? And thankfully, John, the narrator of the story, tells us why he asks Philip this question in verse 6. He said this not because he actually thought that there was a store nearby, but he said it to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Which takes me back to those two related truths. God often leads us into situations to test our faith in Him and in His Word so that our understanding and character can grow. And God is always in control of those circumstances. And He will complete the work He begins in His people. Unfortunately, I think some people misunderstand this story and thinking that it's all about the height of Christian ministry, which is meeting people's physical needs. And certainly that is a good thing. But this story is far greater than that. This story is about Jesus demonstrating to his disciples that as I call you to follow me and as I call you to serve me and serve other people in my name, uh, you can't do this on your own. You don't have the resources, you don't have the intelligence, you don't have the money, you don't have anything to meet the needs that people have because the need is exceedingly great. On your own, you can't do anything. But here's the other part of that lesson, the better news, but with him, nothing is impossible. He can and he does provide for his people and he does it in abundance even when there isn't that much to work with. After all, this is the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And the Latin phrase is ex nihilo, out of nothing. God brought everything into existence out of nothing. If God can do that, then certainly he can take what little we bring to the table and offer and offer to him and make the most out of it. Jesus wanted to test the faith of his disciples. And that is why he does this miracle. It was a sign that was to point them forward to a deeper spiritual reality. That as a follower of Jesus, you can trust him to provide all that you need. And that's especially true when he's called you to serve people and serve him in his name. Philip's response showed he didn't learn the lesson of Christian ministry and the Christian life from Jesus' first sign. Remember when he turned water into wine? And it wasn't just like a little bit of wine, right? It was gallons and gallons of abundant wine. Philip was there and Philip saw, and yet here, Philip forgot all about that, all about Jesus' ability to provide and meet the need. But after Philip responds in this way, another disciple speaks up, Andrew. Do you notice that? Andrew, which is Simon Peter's brother, he answers, although his answer isn't much better, but it's better than Philip's, and we'll see why in a minute. But look at what Andrew says in verse 9. He goes, uh, hey, Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, it seems like a stupid question or a stupid suggestion, right? 
In fact, he even seems like it's a stupid suggestion. I mean, there's five things. But you know, this is a stupid suggestion, Jesus. I know. It, it's not enough to feed all of these people. And he shoots himself down immediately. In the case of Philip, there was no faith at all. At least in Andrew, he's, he's trying to bring a solution, even if he shoots it down in the end. But actually, in Andrew's response, there's a little bit of faith in it. And I think that's clear when you understand that, that Andrew was actually thinking of another time, of another story, when a former prophet fed a lot of people with a little amount of food. The story is of Elisha, one of the great prophets of Israel, and it's found in 2 Kings 4. And the setting of that story is Elisha, this great prophet of God, is teaching other prophets how to do ministry. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 4. A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. An ironically familiar situation. It would seem then by Andrew's suggestion, hey, there's a kid here who's got five barley loaves, that his growing faith in Jesus as a prophet led him to make this suggestion. Hey, Jesus, there's a kid here, and, and he has something to offer However, though Andrew shows signs of belief, he doubts whether he could do it to such a degree. After all, Elisha took 20 and then fed 100 men. But he, they just had five, and they need to feed thousands and thousands of people. So the question that Andrew is thinking is this, could Jesus repeat the same miracle if he can? Can he do it hundreds of times more than what Elisha did, there's no way. There's no way he could do that. But the, I guess the rest of the story answers the question for us, right? What happens next is incredible. Jesus had everyone sit down. He gives thanks to God for the food. And miraculously, as he distributes the bread piece by piece, the supply never runs out. In fact, there was so much food, they filled 12 large baskets full of the leftovers. And after seeing all of this, what conclusion do the people come to about Jesus? Well, John tells us in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they weren't just talking about Elisha, the prophet. They were actually going back even further because Moses in Deuteronomy 18, talked about a prophet that would come later. He writes in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, <coughs> from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. For centuries after Moses spoke those words, they waited and they waited and they waited for this messianic prophet to come to fulfill that promise. And in this moment, 
everyone understood, oh my gosh, here he is. The prophet that Moses talked about, the prophet that was greater than Moses, the prophet that's greater than Elisha, here he is. And if the story ended right there, it would be a great story. It would be a, and they lived happily ever after kind of a story. But that's not where the story ends. Because after this great confession, which is a true confession, Jesus was the prophet that Moses was talking about. But we learn of their inappropriate response to that confession. It says in verse 15, they came to take Jesus by force and make him their king. Didn't didn't Moses say, you're going to listen to him? That's not what they do. Instead, the... The word that they use here for capture him is this like, they're going to literally take him like as a slave practically, force him into being their king. But what does Jesus do? He wants none of that. None of this political game that they want to play. Instead, he bows out. They were supposed to submit to him, but instead he leaves. And the reason for this is because what well, we'll learn in a couple of weeks, or in a few weeks, when we come back to the other part of this story, yes, Jesus was the prophet, and yes, they were right in saying that Jesus is the king, but they forgot that the office of the Messiah was also to fulfill the office of the great high priest of Israel. And Jesus had come to make the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people when he would give his life on the cross for them. This was not something that they were looking for. Jesus was not someone who simply possessed the ability to provide bread for the people. He himself will say, I am the bread of life, using it as a metaphor that he is life itself and all of your sustenance can be is provided in him. The sign that Jesus did here, it not only points to his ability to provide for his people physically, for their physical needs, but it also points forward to his greater ability and greater desire to meet your spiritual needs. And friends, that's how the gospel works. That's how the storyline of scripture works. It moves from the lesser to the greater, and then from the moment of the cross, it moves from the greater to the lesser. Let me explain what I mean. If God was able in the past to provide manna for his people as they left slavery in Egypt and do it for years and years and years, if God is able to do that, if God is able to, through the prophet Elijah, multiply food and feed a hundred people, if Jesus was able to feed thousands in abundance with even less to start with, how much more is God able to meet your deepest spiritual needs? The answer is clear. He is more than able. If God is able to do this, which is a great thing, and it's getting even greater, how much more does God desire to meet your spiritual needs? That's what all of the signs that Jesus does are communicating. They're moving from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus is able to give sight to the blind, how much more is he able to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind? 
If Jesus is able to meet all of your physical needs, and he is, and he does, then how much more is he able and willing to meet your deepest spiritual needs, forgiveness from sins, reconciled relationship to God? The answer, of course, is that he is able. If he's able to do the smaller thing, he can do the greater thing. This is the argument that Jesus actually makes in the Sermon on the Mount. Just notice how he makes this argument. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The answer, of course, is yes. Those whom he has made in his image and likeness, as much as he loves the birds, he loves you far more. He goes on, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles <coughs> seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God will do this for them, how much more will he do it for you? But it works the other way. Notice what Paul does in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We live on this side of the cross now. We not only get to look at the Old Testament and see how God provided for his people, which ultimately makes its climax in the cross, but we live on the other side now. If God has done the greatest thing possible for us, which is forgiving us of our sin, giving us his one and only son, if he will not withhold even that great, great gift, why would we doubt that God can provide for our basic daily needs and do it in abundance. Friends, God will often put our faith to the test. And his tests are not designed to trick us. They're not designed to force us to fail. His tests are designed to awaken and strengthen faith in him and in his word. If he's done it in the past, he can do it Today. James tells us that the trials that the Lord brings into our lives, they're providentially designed to shape us more and more into the image of Christ, which is why he says you can rejoice. Not in the trial, but in what God is going to produce out of it. What this story reminds us of is this because God has done it in the past, because God has done it supremely in Christ. And because he continues to do it every single day in small little ways in our lives, providing for you, providing for our church corporately, no matter what we bring to the table, little or nothing, 
The story reminds us this, that you can trust him still to provide all that you need. Whatever God wants to do in your life, whatever he wants to do with your life, whatever he wants to do in the life of our church, we need to remember that before he does anything, he'll remind us it's, it's going to be all provided by him. And he's going to do it. If he's calling us to it, he's going to provide us the way to make it happen. And he's going to do it in his timing. And he's going to do it in his wonderful ways so that at the end of the day, he alone gets the glory. And he alone deserves the glory for what he has done. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we are in awe of your ability to create, to provide. We are in awe of your willingness to love and serve people like us. God, we are in awe of who you are and what you do. We confess, God, that oftentimes we we find in ourselves that we are our own provider, which is false. We look to the government, we look to other things to be our provider. We look to the wealthy, we look to all kinds of other things to provide for our needs. And yet, the Bible tells us that when we know you, we know the God who owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. You own everything. And so why would we have to worry about anything when it all belongs to you? So we confess, God, of our lack of faith, and and we ask, God, that you would help us in our lack of faith, that you would continue to train us and teach us what it looks like to trust in you. And, and at the end of the day, we pray, God, that you would blow our minds like, like you did in this story, that you would magnify and glorify yourself through your miraculous provision. Help us to give glory to you when that happens. But we thank you, God, that you always provide and that we have this promise that you will. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.